welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. This morning, we have the distinct privilege and honor and part of our life together as a church to welcome new partners into our community. And so partner uh, is what we call, what a church normally calls membership. We call partnership here at Awaken for a number of different reasons. But maybe most um, importantly, we, we assume that this is really actually a, a partnership, that we're in this together. Uh, and so I'm going to invite some people up to the front, and I'll call you by name. Uh, I, I will say a number of them were here first hour, so we may not have uh, the whole crew. But uh, as I call your name, come on up, and if you would, just stand here, and we'll have advisory team and core team and others stand around you, and we'll pray for you. So... Without any further ado, Larissa and Eric Netherland, Ruth and Jeff Erdman, Emily Nelson, Sarah Curran, Katie Menke, Jake and Lizzie Larson, Ross and Carly Fry, L. Lambert, John and Lynn Betcher, and Nick Olas Eggert. Come on, Nick, you're, you're here. Get, get up here. Nick's our sound guy. Get him up here. Here we go. Come on. Here we go. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, so I'll ask you guys a few questions. If, uh, if you can answer, I do, if you affirm them. Uh-oh, now that, now that you're gone, it's ringing. What are we going to do? Where's the sound guy? Oh, Trevor's got it, everybody. Don't worry, Trevor's got it. <laughs> uh, to, those who, to those who have come to be welcomed as partners in the work of the gospel of Jesus and the and Awakened community, do you affirm faith in Christ? Do you intend to honor your commitments to participate fully in the life of the church by being present with your mind, body, and soul, by committing a portion of your resources to the mission of the church as an act of worship, and by using your gifts for the sake of God's world? If so, answer, I do. I, do. I forgot that part first time, sorry. Do you intend to pray for the vision of the church and the leaders who serve here? I do. Uh, and to the partners who are present in the gathering, if you would please stand this morning in solidarity with your brothers and sisters, hearing these commitments made by your brothers and sisters in the life, uh, to the life of the church, do you remember the commitments that you have made, and will you renew them again this morning? If so, answer, we remember. And will you do your part in word and deed through prayer to support and welcome these, your brothers and sisters in Christ, into this body of believers called Awaken? If so, answer, we will. You may be seated. Join me in a word of prayer, if you would. God, we thank you for those that are here and who are gathered this morning. Uh, we thank you for this church. Thank you for the ways in which you are alive and at work and um, moving in the world through it. And so, God, I pray uh, your blessing on these and um, those who have said yes to this next step of being, becoming partners at Awaken and saying, um, we're in and this is our family and we're investing ourselves, um, at least for this season, in this church. And so I pray that the work of their hands and uh, the passions that are in their hearts, God, would bear fruit for your kingdom and for your name's sake uh, and the power of Jesus and the Spirit, I pray, and all God's people said together, amen, amen. Would you welcome these, our new partners? Woohoo! Great, you guys can have a seat. Thank you. All righty, friends, if you want to find your seats, please do so. I probably should add to my sort of routine, like going forward, you know, if you're coronavirus worried, you can just go, peace be with you, brother, peace be with you, sister. Um, that, that, that may not be a joke anymore um, sooner than later, but we're not going to talk, we're not going to 
focus on that. Did anybody notice, we'll focus on this, all ladies leading us in music this morning. How about that? Yeah, right? I took, a, I took a photo of that. Like, how many times have I seen that in my evangelical life? Not very many, unfortunately. But uh, that's real. That's very cool. Welcome to the first Sunday of Lent, everybody. It is Lent. It is spring. It's supposed to be 50 on Friday. My gosh, I feel like I've been resurrected from the dead. I have been resurrected from the dead. Um, but it is the first Sunday of Lent, so welcome. So glad that you're here. Uh, if you didn't know, Lent is the season in the church calendar that we pause this sort of journey on our way to Easter. We stop and uh, are mindful, hopefully, about the things internal. So it is in some ways a look, uh, an introspective journey where we look at our own hearts and our own souls. We prepare for what will come in death and resurrection as Jesus moves towards his own death. We sort of come face to face with our own mortality and our own finitude at Ash Wednesday. And so uh, it is also a season where many of us choose to abstain from something or uh, give something up. Uh, I've actually added something during Lent one year. I added prayer. <laughs> Figured as a pastor, that's probably not a bad idea. But you can add something during Lent. You can abstain from something. But I, I think in a lot of ways, it's really just a chance to, at least for me, abstaining from alcohol this Lent, a chance to sort of um, to notice the longings or the desire that's present in our lives and to ask questions about it. Um, um, if you, when you walked in, if you didn't notice, um, on your left, and as you leave, it'll be on your right, there are pieces of paper hanging, um, and on Ash Wednesday, we extended an invitation to folks in, in, in this question of, what is your invitation this Lent? And so many people wrote down either what they were giving up or the invitation that they have felt in this Lenten season. So if you were here on Ash Wednesday, that's up there. If you weren't here during Ash Wednesday, we'd love for you to add to your or add to it back there. So the papers are back there, and you're welcome to grab one, write it down, and clip it on the little net. And I love that, the idea that these journeys that are very personal and very individual, but yet are together, collected back there, sort of bearing witness to our Lenten experience as a church. So as you come every week, those will be there, hanging, saying, hello, here I am, and here we are. So please uh, add yours to it if you'd like. Also, you should know, there is a new installation in the back, which are, uh, is stunning. If you haven't seen it, my goodness gracious, very talented people here. And the art installation is connected to this new series that we are in, uh, in Lent, which is called Metamorphosis, uh, also the title of an old Delirious album, and I was also told a Hilary Duff album. So to any millennial women in the room, there you are, I want to make sure I cover my audience. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Metamorphosis, what is the spiritual, what is transformation, and what is the journey of transformation? What is present in it? How does it interact with us? How do we find ourselves in the midst of it? All questions we're going to be exploring, and we're going to really kind of lean on two separate but connected journeys to do this. The first journey is, of course, predictably that of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Many of you have you know about the monarch and uh, how amazing this thing is, this well-known and well-documented but ever so mysterious journey and transformation that takes place. As much as we know as like 2020, you know, science and, and microscopes and all this, you know, atomic stuff, we still don't know things about what happens in that cocoon, <laughs> which is, I just think, so cool. Like, there's still something out there that we don't know. Ineffable. We don't even, how do you put words to that? 
the caterpillar to the butterfly. My spiritual director, his name is Joel, and he's been walking with me for a number of years. And one of the, one of the tools or uh, things that we talk about is this, this journey of transformation um, in a butterfly, from a caterpillar to a butterfly, as a means to understand the spiritual journey. And so you know that maybe there are traditionally four stages, the egg, the caterpillar, the chrysalis, and then the adult. In Joel's world and in my world, and now in our world, there will be six stages. So there is the egg, the beginning, the caterpillar, and then we're going to add in here one called transition, um, which is this season or this moment when you sense something is coming. What has been clear and your, your mission has been clear on, and then all of a sudden something new. You can, you can feel it like the dawn, it's coming. We sense a new thing on the horizon, which can be a very challenging season. Um, often it feels like things are falling apart even in that season of transition. Uh, Richard Rohr says that, he uh, speaks about it in this way, the word change normally refers to new beginnings, but transformation, the mystery we're examining, more often happens not when something new begins, but when something old falls apart. Chaos, uh, the pain of something old falling apart, chaos invites the soul to listen at a deeper level. It invites and sometimes forces the soul to go to a new place because the old place is falling apart. So the egg, caterpillar, transition, and then, of course, the chrysalis, the cocoon. And beyond that, this, this uh, part of the, the, the journey we're going to call eclosure, which is another word for emergence, which is a fascinating moment for the butterfly, like when it's coming out of the cocoon and what needs to happen and the struggle that has to be present in order for it to become so egg, caterpillar, chrysal or transition, chrysalis, eclosure, and then, of course, the adult monarch. Uh, the second journey we're going to look at as we walk through this series is the journey of Moses and the Israelites in the story also known as the Exodus, a very famous one in the Bible. Uh, before we jump in and get to the egg and the birth of Moses, I'll say a couple of things that I want to encourage you to sort of keep at the fore, keep in the foreground of this series. The first of which is every stage has light and darkness. Uh, I, I think it's important to note as we begin that there is no need for judgment at each or any of these stages. No one is better than the other. Uh, they do not get uh, more important as you go on. And so uh, wherever we find ourselves, of which it might be multiple places, I'll say more about that in a minute, there's no need to, um, to create value and judgments based on that. All right? um, each stage has light and darkness, beauty and struggle. And so notice and be present to those things. I'll also say that these don't always go in linear sequential order. So for you type A drivers out there, sorry. Uh, the artists, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, th these don't necessarily go one, two, three, four, five, six, right? A, a butterfly never becomes a caterpillar, so it, you know, it never goes backwards that way. But in, for us as humans in the spiritual life, Sometimes we find that there may be a little bit of nuance and give and take. So I want to encourage you not to get stuck on one, two, three, four, five, six, but like what's true about this stage of development and transformation and how much and what is resonant in me, right? Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is that you might be at multiple places along the journey. Um, you are multifaceted people. You have multiple roles. You show up differently to your work than you do to your marriage. Praise Jesus, I hope. And you may feel like in your work that you're in this particular phase or this stage of the journey, and that's great, beautiful, awesome, and it may be very different from where you feel like you are in a relationship with someone or in some other aspect of your life. So know that you might feel resonance in different places for different reasons, and that's okay. You don't have to think you're going crazy. You're not. All right? 
Um, Renita Weems, who is the author of a book I'm reading, gifted to me by my friend Jenna, an African-American pastor, writes about it this way, and I think this is um, fitting as we begin. We are always repeating ourselves, returning to old themes, re-examining the same issue from a different angle, from the vantage point of a different season. We don't move on as much as we return wiser. The spiritual life is not a line. I would suggest you think about it more of like a spiral. That we, we, we travel and we were there and then we're there again with new knowledge or new learnings. And then we go deeper and oh, here we are again. For example, I forgave my dad once uh, for uh, something that happened in my life. And uh, I wrote a big letter and I felt like, okay, forgiveness, we're doing it. Yeah, all right, done. And then I had a kid and I found myself really angry again at my dad, but just in a different season with new information, right? And I think to think about the spiritual life in terms of a spiral and not a line will be very helpful to us, right? We don't move on as much as we return wiser. So to return to something, you need not kick yourself or feel like, I'm such an idiot, I've been here before, why can't I get it right? Oh no, that's just, that's what happens. That's how, it's what, it's life, okay? So, here we go. Week one, the egg and the birth of Moses. If you have a Bible, I will invite you to stand if you are able, and we'll read from Exodus chapter 2. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And so the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. To which all the nursing women in the room say, I'd love to get paid. Yeah, bring it on. Uh, I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took, took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Pray with me. God, this morning as we take a few moments and open ourselves up to this story and this word, and to you, uh, I pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us by your spirit. You'd be present in ways that we would know you as Emmanuel, not just at Christmas, but here in Lent. Uh, one who is with us and for us. And uh, God, would you give us the strength and courage to really open our ears and our hearts and our souls um, to what you might have for us today. I pray in the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. You may be seated, friends. Exodus. Man, what a story, right? Um, probably one you're very familiar with. You've probably heard this before, the birth of Moses, the Exodus story. I love the Bible for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is that, you know, we've read this, I've read this story a million times, and yet uh, there's, this, there's this reality that it, it comes to me new because I'm new, I'm different, I'm a verb. You can't step in the same river twice, and so I'm different from the last time I read it. And so I read the story, but also the story reads me. You know what I'm saying? So I want to invite us to let the story read us a little bit this morning, and, and um, we're going we're to come back to exactly like what is present in this, but a little bit about the egg, 
Uh, I did a little research for you. I am not a biologist nor a scientist, though I did get an A in biology in college. I was very proud of that. I took, thank you, yeah, post-secondary, post-secondary, I would highly recommend it to Minnesota residents. Great program, nearly uh, a full semester of school paid for by the government, and you could get a whole year. It's incredible. But I went to school, I got an A in biology, so here's a picture of, <laughs> that didn't connect at all, not at all. Here's a picture of a monarch egg. Uh, you'll notice a couple things. It's conical, it's shaped like a cone, it's got little ridges on it. Uh, here it is blown up and bigger, and that is a fingernail, friends, and that's the egg. So you can tell how small these little things are. They're tiny, microscopic, very, very small. And they're fascinating, so much going on in an egg. What could you learn about the incredible edible egg? I don't know, but you can learn a lot about a monarch egg, friends. Here we go. Um, you should know each egg is formed fully inside of the female butterfly before it is laid. Uh, it's, uh, it's fully formed, including this hard outer shell uh, called the corian, which protects the developing larva inside of it. Uh, you could hear Tommy Boy saying about a thick candy shell. Yes, just like that. A thick candy shell on the outside keeps it safe, and the shell is lined with wax. Why, you ask? So that it doesn't dry out, so that that which is developing on the inside has all the nutrients and moisture that it needs to grow and become this little caterpillar. Uh, the eggs, they have a tiny like funnel-shaped top, and uh, on the end of that, there are these things called micropiles, and they're like little channels that go all the way down inside of the egg so that the egg can be fertilized by uh, the other friend. <clears throat> uh, we know, we know that by the male, okay? <laughs> by the guy. Uh, we know that these eggs, they, they, they're, they're laid on the underside of, of the leaves. So you look out in the forest and you, you don't see the, them because they're hidden. They're intentionally laid on the underside of the leaves as to protect them from onlookers and things that might eat them, but also the sun and the heat and the elements that would come. It's as if somebody was looking out for it. Uh, also, as it relates to monarchs, fascinatingly, they're laid on the underside of milkweed plants. So every spring, my 11-year-old, Lyndon, she, some kids say they're going to be forest, like, res or sea rescuers. We all know they're not going to be. But this one actually might be a sea rescuer. She loves animals. On our trip to Australia, she had a journal where she wrote down every animal that she saw, like 279 of them. So every spring she goes out and she finds these monarch eggs, like tiny little microscopic eggs. She scours the milkweeds of West 7th, or West St. Paul, and like cuts them off and brings them home and puts them in a little jar and nurses them to like little larvae and they come out and then they eat all the milkweed and she keeps adding milkweed until sure enough they lay or they, they spin, become, they go into this cocoon and then they come out. So we've watched multiple monarchs like from the egg all the way to the end. So cool. Highly recommend it, even if you don't have children. It's really cool. So, yeah, oh, the, the milkweed. They lay them on milkweed. Why? Because when the little caterpillar is going to be born, that's what they eat. Like, seriously, something, somebody has been thinking about this, right? Like, uh, almost like when a baby is born, like the nursing mother, right? Like everything that they need right there, immediately upon arrival to the earth. It's just amazing, fascinating. We could go on and on. I won't. What about Moses? 
What about Moses in the story that we read in the book of Exodus? I want to make a few observations about this event, and then I want to come back to the egg. So first, um, Exodus chapter 2, verse 2, we notice that a Levite woman gives birth to a son, and it says, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. That seems odd. As a parent, I don't hide them when they're, when they're doing well. I hide them when they're doing poorly, you know? Like when they're doing poorly, when they're, when they're killing it, you're like, oh my gosh, that kid, product of his mother and his father, or those who raised him, we're doing it. And then when they don't, we're like, who raised you? Where did you come from? I don't hide them when they're fine. So it's a fascinating detail to note, like the child was fine and she hid him, unless you know that the Hebrew word used for fine is in fact the word tov. And if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, I'm so glad you're here. In Hebrew, the word tov is first used in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 in the story about creation. And it says that God created the world and all these things and God called them good, tov. Tov is the word that gets translated good. And I want to suggest that good is more, of a, more than a description of what has been made and rather a thread which you are invited to weave and follow all the way through the Bible. A river, as it were, that flows and continues to give life and fresh, clean water. So what's so important about Tov? Um, verses 11 and 12 in the Genesis poem give a, it, like the most explicit and comprehensive understanding of what's being talked about and called good. And then Isaiah chapter 5, 55, later the prophet speaks back this thing that has been talked about. So when scripture's talking to each other, it's an important one and we might want to pay attention. It says this in verse 11, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with the seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, tov. Now, notice where the seeds are in the story. You might be um, quick to say they're in the trees or the fruit, but I would actually suggest that they're not. They're in the ground. The land produced the trees and the plants that produced the fruit that had the seeds in them. And so in the story, the, plant, the, the seeds are actually present in creation. So what is tov? Tov is not just the presence of something good or the existence of life, but it's, that it's, it's when life has the potential for more life. So God in the creation story embeds in creation and in you and me the seeds for future life. And what's good is not when those things just come to life, but when we, creation itself, the earth and you and I, participate in bringing life to life. That's what's good. So it's not just the potential for life, it's when you and I engage in creating and co-creating with God. That's called good. So friends, Moses at his birth is declared tov, that present in this life were the seeds of future life in it. And of course we know the story from hindsight that all the life that comes from this one seed of life, more life and more life and more life. The wonder of the butterfly is not just that there is parts of the caterpillar that make it through the transformation, but actually that there are parts of the butterfly present in the caterpillar. I don't know if you know this or not. Radiolab? The Goo and You, 16 minutes, little podcast, fascinating. There are parts of the, of the butterfly present in the caterpillar, like these, this sort of trans, transparent, like hidden against, tucked up, like the remnants of a, what will be a wing. 
That's not what's called good isn't just the potential of life, but it's that which has the potential for more life and more life and more life. When you and I participate in the bringing it about. So Moses is seen as Tove by his mother. Not only that, but that Tove, that good, is placed in a papyrus basket. Now, our translations don't help us in some of the hyperlinks or the, the, the ways in which the author is sort of nodding and saying, you remember this, don't you, right? Uh, the fancy Greek word for it is called metalepsis, when authors in the Bible or other, other literature will sort of note uh, something that they assume that you know about and they know that, you're, that you know what they're talking about. So when the author of Exodus says that Moses was placed in a teva, yeah, it could be translated papyrus basket, but if you had Genesis chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 2 right next to each other, you would recognize that this word has been used before. What else has been covered with tar and pitch? Say it again. The ark. That is correct. Thank you. It's a joke. It's a baby. It's not saying anything. I translated it. You shall not speak in tongues unless there is an interpreter present. You will know that if you had the Hebrew right next to each other, that Teva is first used in Genesis chapter 6, and it is the ark in which Noah and his family is put in. And then it's used again in Exodus chapter 2. And so Moses' mother sees the tove in him and places him not just in a papyrus basket, but in an ark. Now, if you can set aside the death and destruction that happens in the story of Noah just for a second, I know that's a big ask, but if you would, this is an all-play question where I'd love to hear your thoughts and answers. What is the ark and what is it doing in Genesis chapter 6? Say it again. Protecting. Protecting. Good, thank you. What else? Safe. Safe? Saves. It's a seed. It's a cocoon. Some people have said it's a womb holding life. What else? Anyone from the transepts? Transepts were on fire first hour, just saying. <laughs> what is the ark? That which holds a womb that preserves, nurtures, carries, something that crosses over from one thing to another. The place where seeds are invested. What does it mean to say that Moses' mother sees the tove in him and places him in a teva, an ark? So not only that Moses is seen as Tove and that it's placed in an ark, but that Moses himself is seen. Multiple times in this story, that word is used. Moses' mother considers the life of the child and sees the Tove in him and puts him in the basket. His sister, I don't know if you noticed, stands watch on the riverbank to, uh, to see what will happen to Moses. And then later, Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses and brings him out of the water, which begs an interesting question about who can participate in truth? Who can see what God is up to in the world? Is it only the people who are God's people? Or is it the sworn enemy of God's people who enslaved them? Interesting, but that's not what we're talking about today. One of the other rivers in the text is this idea of seeing. Can we see as God sees? It's, of course, used again in the Genesis poem that God saw that it was good. God saw the light and separated it from the darkness, as if God saw what we couldn't see, the potential for life, energy, that which could be, the seed. And so to see as God sees is the invitation. 
which seems like a really bizarre ask, right? Like, I'm not God. I'm human. I can't see as God sees. But if you read Scripture with that lens, it seems possible that you can. That some people are able to see as God sees and recognize what is in front of them. Have you ever not seen something in your life? Where maybe you looked at something and you didn't perceive it as it was, but rather how you wanted it to be or what, with whatever information you had at the moment, and then you got more information and you realized, oh, I didn't see all that was there. That's a question the Bible keeps asking. Can you see as God sees? Can you recognize what's in front of you? In this story, Moses, or Moses' mother, the Pharaoh's daughter, his sister, they see what's there. The tov in Moses is seen by mom, sister, Pharaoh's daughter, and, and that which is seen is nurtured and cared for and placed in the ark, a vessel of life and potential, a womb of sorts. A few observations about the story. Let's come back to the egg. These moments in the process of transformation, what can we learn about the beginning? What can we learn from the story of Moses? Four thoughts as we close. The first of which I would say this way. There is the potential for new life with the seeds of future life in it. There's something about the character of God and the spiritual transform, transformation in the, in the spiritual life uh, that, that, that when God is present, the f- life with future life is always hanging around. You know, like, like that's as if God, it's as if this is how God rolls. Uh, does anyone have any in, anyone in their life that's incessantly late? Don't nudge the person next to you. I do not recommend you do that. Or how about incessantly early, right? I am, I'm incessantly early. My kids hate it about us. We'll drive around neighborhoods early to somebody's house for dinner, and they know. They're like, Dad, are you early again? Gosh, get it together. It doesn't matter how much badgering you badger the person who's incessantly late with or how much you like, tell that person who's always early to slow their roll. It's just how they show up. It's just how they do it. This is as if this is how God rolls, that life with future life is always hanging around. Which says a lot about God, doesn't it? Not only that life with future life is always how God operates, but then that that life with future life is invited and invested in you. God could, assuming God is God, could hoard and hold all the power to create to God's self. But that's exactly what God does not do which is fascinating to me, a commentary on the divine being. Not only that God creates, and when God creates, it's life with more life, potentially, but then that you and I get to participate in that, that the seeds of life are planted in me, and I get to help bring them forth, and, I, and you as well. You see, because the egg, the beginning, our transformations are not just about us. They're always about others when God is involved. Somehow it gets woven into the story that something that happens in me, some waiting of my life that becomes something, this seed that becomes a life, doesn't just benefit me. It always benefits the world because this is how God works. God is not selfish. So your transformation, it's about you, but it's also about something bigger than you. That's, that's, good to, that's good news. I would also say that it, it's not only that there's life and with, with potential life in it, but we're nurtured and cared for in this stage. Moses' mother, his sister, even Pharaoh's daughter are part of the benevolence. Those who are outside the lines 
care for the egg, care for the seed, care for the life. When things are being readied for life and prepared in us and in the world, there is nurture and care that comes from the most mysterious of places. I've found this to be true over and over and over again. I've said this before, I've shared this story, but I got kicked off my golf team in college because I had a hot temper, which is really hard to imagine. I know that I run a little hot. But this experience, as I look back, uh, there were some seeds present in me that needed to be born as I moved into life and adulthood. And things that I desperately needed to confront and walk through that I'm in some ways still confronting and walking through as an adult. And during that time, as I look back on that season where there was a seed of life that needed to be born in me, I, I look back and there was nurture and there was care from bizarre places. One of them was my college golf coach. So you get kicked off your golf team. If you have a scholarship, you would assume if you're not going to play golf, you don't get a scholarship. He brings me into his office post-mortem and says, Micah, you're done. There is no spot on this team for you next year, your senior year, but I'm going to honor your scholarship. Because he knew that if I didn't have it, I would have to go home. Care from a mysterious place that I did not see coming. And maybe more, more predictably, maybe I did see coming, but Laura, who was my girlfriend at the time and now my wife, just literally just held me as I walked through failure and death and shame as an RA and a leader of the worship team in college. Like, you can imagine me at 20, right? With my hair and guitar and, Lord, I lift your name on high. <laughs> it was as bad as you imagine. <laughs> but she just held me. And nurture and care does when we're in this season, in this stage of the egg, it does come from odd places at times. And I would also say, connected to that, that we are dependent upon something other than ourselves, which is really, really important, especially as Americans, as 21st century Americans, as mostly white Americans. This, this narrative of meritocracy, that you're, you're, you're sort of rewarded and benefited from your hard work and your effort, that's the air we breathe and the, the, the water that we swim in. And so that in, in connected to our history, that's been true for, for white folks, not so much for indigenous folks or people of color, meritocracy. It's a myth. It's not true. But as we talk about this and we say that we're dependent upon something other than ourselves, when we live in a world that tells us we're rewarded and advanced based on our work and our talent and our effort... But there is this moment in this season of, as a part of the experience of transformation where you are dependent upon something other than yourself. It's important to say that out loud and to stop for a moment and to like rest here and let that sink in. We tend to avoid that place at all costs because we're vulnerable and dependent and that is not seen as a good thing. But friends, you cannot pass go and collect your $200 if you don't stop here. You can't play. Like we, we want to fast forward, right? Instant pass. You know, I love This Is Us because the first commercial is one minute long and two pushes on my remote and I'm right back to it. That's what I want to do. I want to avoid this place where I have to wait and I'm dependent and vulnerable and I can't fend for myself. All I can do, all you can do when we're here is receive grace and gift. 
So when we're here in this season, there's potential for life and more life, and it's nurtured and cared for, and we're dependent on something other than ourselves. And then I would say, finally, That was terrible, wasn't it? The anxiety in the room was palpable. I could see it in your faces. We hate that moment when we have to wait for something and we don't know where it's going. Like, what's he going to do? Has he frozen? Is he going to keep talking? Is this over? This is weird. New, new day in Awakens history. Micah, speechless. And we're like programming, collectively, we're programming waiting out of our lives with our technologies and our fast food services. Like, you don't even have to go grocery shopping anymore, gang. You just like call Tom, Tammy, I need some eggs. And she like, he goes in aisle six and gets your eggs and then you just pick them up. Or even better, you just pay a little more and they deliver it right to your house. Have we like collectively programmed out of our lives all the activities that let our hearts and our souls wander and wait? And at what cost? Because waiting is not the worst thing in the world, friends. In fact, it is, ne it is necessary for the spiritual life. Sue Monk Kidd, in a book that I'm reading called When the Heart Waits, tells a story about she was at a retreat with actual monks, like real live monks. And she's talking to one of them, and she says, I, she says it this way. She says, I saw you sitting beneath the tree, just waiting so still. How is it that you can wait so patiently in the moment? I can't seem to get used to the idea of doing nothing. Ah, he breaks into a wonderful smile. Well, there's your problem. You've bought into the myth that when you're waiting, you're doing nothing. I hope you'll hear me and what I'm about to tell you, and I hope you hear it all the way down to your toes. When you're waiting, you're not doing nothing. You're doing the most important something that there is. You're allowing the soul to grow up. If you cannot be still and wait, you cannot become what God created you to be. That's gospel, friends. When it comes to religion and spirituality, she says these days, we tend to be long on butterflies and short on cocoons. So it is with the egg. Even more so because we're helpless, we're unable to make these seeds grow and move this process along at our pace that makes us feel comfortable. So let me close this morning by asking you a question. Each week, I've worked hard to sort of boil down the phase to a question that I want you to consider. And this process of spiritual transformation, it takes time, and it takes space, and it takes seasons, and it doesn't happen all at once. And in the beginning, when there are just seeds of possibility, we find that we're cared for, and we're nurtured, and provision is given and held, and we find that there's something to be learned in the waiting. The question I want you to consider this morning is, do you believe that God is good? Friends, if there is a divine being out there, 
The answer to this question is one of the most important questions you can consider in all of your life. What is God like? When you close your eyes and you're quiet enough and still enough to imagine what the divine being looks like, smells like, feels like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Is God good? Because if God is not benevolent and trustworthy and kind and compassionate, then the waiting is hell. Because you never know what you're going to get. It's like living with an addict. Who knows how they're going to show up today? But if God is good, if the divine is benevolent and kind and compassionate and love, then the waiting can be a place of transformation. It can be a place of life, of sustenance, of nourishment, of growing, of becoming. But if God is not good, we're all in a lot of trouble. Because who's waiting today? And what if, is it, what if what is out there is not as beautiful and as kind and as loving and compassionate as the Jesus that we see. What is God like? And do you believe, do you know God to be good? This stage at the beginning rises and falls on that question. Pray with me if you will. God, for just a moment, we're going to be still and quiet and sit with that question. Are you good? And I pray that by your spirit, by your presence, whatever we imagine that to be like, look like, that you would remind us, whisper to us, hold us in your goodness. That you would Reveal yourself, show yourself to be, if you are, good, kind, loving, nurturing, caring. And that if we find ourselves in a season of waiting, that you would wait with us. So Holy Spirit, would you speak We were talking earlier, is, it, is that a minor four? I just desperately wanted it to go away. And isn't that like waiting? Like that, and then there's like in the core, or the, the, the bridge there, there's like a tiny little lift where it sort of starts to resolve and you're like, God, yes, and then, man, thank you. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you meant to do that, but it made me feel something. Um, will, you or will you stand uh, as we close? I want to offer a benediction to you. Um, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that sometimes the waiting, it may take years. Like pastors don't normally say that. Like, oh yeah, you know, like, come to Jesus and everything is going to, your waiting will be over. You'll find what you've, 
And I just haven't found that to be true. And a lot of people that I know and I trust have said that's not really true. Sometimes it takes years, sometimes decades we wait for something. But there's, the good news is that God is good. Like, who put the, who, who, who tells the monarch to lay the egg on the underside of the leaf? You know? Like, what kind of being does that? And we could go on and on and on about all the ways the universe is saying that if there is a God, that God is good. So whatever waiting we might experience, we know, we trust that God is good. God is kind. God is love. That there are seeds of life with potential life there, that that's cared for and nurtured, it's being held, it's being provided for. And that you can wait and you can trust. So if you find yourself there today, be of good cheer. You're right where you need to be. Don't try to run, because it won't work. But life will come. The sun will, it always rises. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. Grace and peace, friends. Add to the Ash Wednesday. Peace out there if you'd like. Prayer space is open. Blessings. Find us online at www at awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.